You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Something that I've talked about a lot on this podcast is the fact that I do believe that internet sleuths and podcasts, even like this one, are something that can be an assistance to open cases. However, much on the flip side, there are many, many times throughout history where we have seen the victims of crimes and the families of victims of crimes can have their lives severely damaged and even completely ruined by people who are always quick to share their opinions and their guilty verdicts with the community at large. Many people think that that is something that came around with the advent and the growth of things like social media, something that bonded people together over cases that are both open and closed. However, as I'm going to show you with this week's case, onlookers sharing their opinions, which in turn turned into rumors, is something that predates the internet. In 1973, a group of five teenagers ventured into the forest for a fire and to smoke some marijuana when they were completely ambushed by three brothers. Four teenagers lost their lives that day, and one girl survived. However, what was clearly a blessing in her life would turn into a curse. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 111 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Surviving a mass murder can also ruin your life. The Sandra Chesky Story. Gitche Manitou is a small nature preserve that's located in Lyon County, which is in the northwestern tip of Iowa and just to the north of Granite, Iowa, and also just to the southeast of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The reserve is known for being an ancient Native American burial ground. The area was used by teenagers from both states over the years as a place to host bush parties, also to have campfires and other group get-togethers of that nature. On the evening of November 17, 1973, that is exactly what five teenagers from Sioux Falls, South Dakota were doing. Roger Essam, who was 17 years old, Stuart Bade, who was 18 years old, Mike Hadrath, who was 15 years old, Dana Bade, and Sandra Chesky, who was 13 years old, all got together and headed to Gitche Manitou. 
Sandra had just moved to a suburb of Sioux Falls within a year of that date, and she was in the seventh grade and trying to figure out where she could fit in within the teen group that lived in her area. She'd started dating Roger Essam, and Stuart was generally the guy that drove all of the friends around when they were hanging out. On that night of November 17th, Roger had asked Sandra to go with the friends to Gitchy Manitou, and the group of friends had a couple of joints and were going to have a campfire, and Stuart was going to bring his guitar and play for everyone. The four boys were said to have been the best of friends and kids that really kept to themselves. From everything that I could find, they were a group of friends that seemed to find one another because each of them didn't really fit into any of your other stereotypical high school friend groups when you're a teenager. The four of the boys were the types that you would figure to be bullied back then, and so they bonded together and they found their way through life. The five of them parked the van in the tall grass and then headed southwest down a small but well-trodden path. The big Sioux Falls River was about 30 yards behind them and they settled into an opening in the forested area with a tall natural quartzite wall that rose up on the south side of their campfire. The group had just got the fire going and settled in only to have been there for about 20 minutes when they heard the sounds of twigs snapping on the forest floor from someone else walking. Suddenly, the serene quiet was broken and a gunshot exploded in the forest. At approximately 10 p.m. coming out of the forest were 29-year-old Alan, 24-year-old David, and 21-year-old James Fryer, three brothers. They were three brothers from Sioux Falls, and they were reportedly out in the Gitche Manitou looking to illuminate or spotlight deer so that they could poach them. Instead, what they came upon was a group of teenagers at a campfire. Allegedly, David Fryer was sent ahead to spy on the teenagers and see who was there and what they were up to. David would come back to his brothers and tell them that they were all sitting by the campfire and singing and smoking marijuana. The three brothers decided that they would pretend to be narcotics officers. All three brothers gathered shotguns from their truck and they positioned themselves so that the teenagers were essentially in a fishbowl underneath them. All three opened fire from their positions up on that ridge. When the brothers were spotted, Roger Essam, Sandra's boyfriend, approached them and started to call out and ask who they were and what they were doing there. Roger was shot and killed instantly on the spot, and Stuart Bade and Michael Hadrath were also wounded from the initial gunfire. The teenagers, except Roger, ran into the forest and hid amongst the trees, unsure of what had happened and what they were even dealing with. So, I mean, it's pretty evident that we're not dealing with intelligent people here. I would like to think that most people don't plan to go illegally hunting for deer in the forest and then pivot to killing people instead. 
but it was later determined at trial and actually proven that these three friar brothers actually believed that narcotics officers were allowed to indiscriminately kill drug users if they came across them. They believed that the fact that they had shot someone was actually fine on some level, and also that the other teenagers should know that fact and surrender for those reasons. Allow me to say it again. We're not dealing with intelligent life forms here. The friars did come down from the ridge, and they ordered the other teenagers to come out from hiding in the forest. They even kicked at the boys who were down on the ground and mocked them, saying that they were playing dead. Michael Hadrath and Sandra Chesky did appear out from a trail leaving from the campfire. The pair asked the friars who they thought they were emerging from the forest like that and shooting at them. Alan Fryer then shot Michael in the arm and said essentially that they were police officers and they could do whatever they wanted. David Fryer told them that Roger was going to be fine and that he had only been shot with a tranquilizer. Sandra would later say that she believed that and she believed that they all did at that point in time. Alan and David Fryer would then force Dana, Michael, and Sandra along that trail that left from the campfire with shotguns in their backs. Dana walked slowly up the path as Sandra tried to help Michael up the path. Sandra said that even at that point, she didn't believe that they were in danger. All things considered, she believed that perhaps the shots had been tranquilizers, and perhaps they were just in trouble for being in possession of marijuana. When they emerged from the forest, though, that is when things changed dramatically. Sandra's hands were tied together, and she alone was placed inside of a truck that belonged to the friars. Alan reportedly got into the truck with Sandra, and at some point he untied her hands and he told her that she was too young to be caught up in a drug bust. She said that as the two of them drove away, she saw Stuart, Dana, and Michael alive still. Sandra even said that she remembered that the last thing that she had said to the three boys before she and Alan drove off was that she would see them in school. She assumed that they were all going to some kind of police station or detention center for being busted with marijuana. It was later presented in court that after the truck drove away with Alan and Sandra inside, James and David lined up the three boys near their van and executed all three of them. Unfortunately, the ordeal was also far from over for Sandra as well. Alan even stopped on the way back to Sioux Falls to get pop for himself and Sandra. Sandra said that she believed so much that Alan was an officer of some kind that she didn't even think of running away when he left her alone inside of the truck. All three brothers and Sandra wound up at a farmhouse in South Dakota about an hour or so after Sandra had last seen her friends alive. Alan got out of the truck when the other two brothers arrived and James Fryer got into the truck with Sandra and he forced her to take off her clothes and he raped her. When James got out of the truck, uh, Alan got back in the truck and Sandra told Alan that she was a virgin and that she was only 13 years old. 
Alan said at first that he didn't believe her, and when she persisted, he seemed to be taken aback by her age, and he certainly had some kind of remorse for what had been done. Investigators believed that for Alan, this is maybe even the point where everything became more real. Before it was just people that he was shooting, but he had driven back with Sandra, and he had talked to Sandra, and now he had some kind of remorse and empathy for everything that had happened. He told Sandra that he would try to get her out of everything. After the other two brothers left, Alan would grab a club and tell Sandra that they needed to go inside of the abandoned house that they were parked at and, quote, look for critters. But Sandra was scared to death, and you can only imagine why, and she refused to go into the house with Alan. In the end, Alan relented, and instead of killing Sandra, as he had told his brothers he was going to do, he took Sandra home. Sandra said that when she was dropped off at home, she couldn't sleep and she was worried about her friends. The next day, as a couple from Sioux Falls was visiting and driving through Gitche Manitou, they came across the three bodies of Stuart Bade, Dana Bade, and Michael Hadrath, which had been left along the roadside by the brothers after they had shot them. They immediately called the police, and an investigation obviously started in earnest, but initially there weren't enough clues to give any idea of what had happened to the three boys. Sandra said that she had started trying to reach Roger's home starting at 8 a.m. that morning, and that she was wondering why Roger wasn't at home and no one was answering the phone. Sandra said that when Roger didn't answer, she had gone with a friend and hitchhiked to Sioux Falls and tried calling the Essams again. This time, one of Roger's brothers had answered the phone, and he told Sandra to stay where she was and that he would come and get her. He told Sandra that something incredibly awful had taken place. And then, of course, that is when Sandra found out that the party was not crashed by police, and the bullets that were in the guns were not tranquilizers, and the boys had all been murdered when she was taken away in the truck by Alan. The following day, the body of Roger Essam would be found in the forest where he had been shot nearby where the campfire had been. The days that followed would be hectic for Sandra, to say the least. She was the only witness in four murders, and so investigators had Sandra looking at many, many mugshots, writing down any details that she could remember, and they also would have her driving along with investigators as they tried to find the deserted farmhouse that Sandra said she had been taken to and raped. Many people were even starting to wonder if there was more to the story and if Sandra herself had something to do with the murders of the four boys. Many people could not wrap their heads around why Sandra was allowed to return home while four others were seemingly indiscriminately killed. Sandra says that she even remembers that some of the investigators seem to believe that she may be playing games with them. Sandra understood that there was a belief that she must at least know the names of the people that had killed her friends and kidnapped her. The story that Sandra had told just seemed to not make any sense. 
On November 29th of 1973, Sandro was out on one of those road trips with the sheriff of Lyon County, Iowa, Craig Vinson. When they were nearby Hartford, South Dakota, she said that she recognized a farmhouse and she said that the large red fuel tank next to the garage had been used by Alan before he drove her home. The farm, as it turned out, was owned by a local farmer who was also Alan's boss. Ironically, as Sandra and Craig were at the farmhouse, Alan Fryer drove by in the exact truck that he was driving in on the night that he kidnapped Sandra and that the four boys had been murdered. When Sandra saw the truck, she immediately told Craig that that was the boss and he had addressed himself as the boss, the person that was behind everything. That truck was of course pulled over very quickly after that, and Alan Fryer was arrested. His brothers were also arrested soon afterwards as well. On November 30th of 1973, having identified Alan immediately when he drove by, Sandra would also identify David Fryer and James Fryer in a police lineup. Believe it or not, Alan initially told investigators that Sandra's friends had opened fire on he and his brothers first. He said that they had accidentally killed someone, but it was in self-defense. After telling that particular fib a couple of times, Alan started to slowly shade towards the truth a bit more. He said that they had come along on the group of friends and that they were drinking and smoking. It really did sound as though these brothers believed that being caught with marijuana was a shootable offense and somehow defense for what they had done to all four boys. David Fryer tried sticking to that same similar story at first, saying that they had felt justified because they found the teens smoking marijuana and they wanted to take it away from them. David finally seemed to be the brother that first told police the closest thing to the truth. James Fryer strangely told a much different story to the police than either of his brothers. When the police started to question him, James immediately rolled over on his brothers and tried pointing every finger that he had at David and Alan. He said that Alan was pretending to be a detective, and he said that when they got Sandra alone, she had been laughing and having a great time with them. He said that Sandra had not been sexually assaulted at all, and in fact she wanted to have sex with David and with James. James also said that his brother had killed all four of the boys. James, you see, he knew he was perhaps in more trouble than either of the other two were. James was serving jail time at the time of these murders. He was out of jail because he had signed up for and been approved to take part in the work release program that was in place. Instead of going back to jail at the end of the shift, James had David, his brother, call the jail to impersonate his boss. David said that James was needed to work a double shift instead of returning to the jail and that was approved. Obviously, that was all a ruse, and James was never working that double shift. Alan and David were held in Lyon County Jail in Rock Rapids, Iowa, 
and James remained in Sioux Falls because he was, as mentioned, already serving jail time there. On December 1st of 1973, Allen, David, and James were all charged with four counts each of murder. Their bond was set at $4,000 per brother. On February 12th of 1974, David Fryer would plead guilty to three charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter. He did admit that he killed Stuart Bade. David would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Alan Fryer would go through psychiatric testing to see if he was fit to stand trial for his crimes or not, and he was found fit to stand trial. His trial also started in February of 1974, and he would be found guilty on May 20th, 1974, of four counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. James, who was always the outlier, it seems, had agreed to be extradited to Iowa from South Dakota to face his charges, and then he later changed his mind and fought the extradition. He would lose that battle and would be moved to the same prison that Allen was being held in when he was extradited. On June 18th of 1974, James and Allen actually escaped from the Lyon County Jail and stole a vehicle. The two would flee the state but were ultimately arrested again in Wyoming. Both faced further federal charges in regards to that escape. In December of 1974, James would finally go to trial, and on December 30th, he was found guilty of three charges of first-degree murder and one charge of manslaughter. James also would serve a life sentence with no chance of parole. All of the cases were certainly anchored by the fact that Alan allowed Sandra to live that day, and she was the star witness in all three cases. Because James was already going to face life in prison, it was deemed that it was not necessary to make Sandra go through an additional trial for the sexual assault. Alan, who's now 79 years old, David, who is now 74 years old, and James, who is now 71 years old, are all currently still alive and still in custody at the Fort Dodge Correctional Facility. All three continue to be listed as lifers in the system and not to ever be paroled. By the incredibly young age of 14, Sandra Chesky, though, had already been subjected and put through hell. She had witnessed a murder, she had been sexually assaulted, and she had been the last person to see four of her closest friends alive. On top of that, she went through hell as a witness when trying to solve the crime and also as a star witness for three separate murder trials. On top of all of the crimes committed against her and all of the stress that she went through when she, the trials were over, none of that ever went away. Obviously, Sandra was forced to continue on in life without her friends and with the undoubted mental health struggles that everything she had been through would cause for someone. On top of that, Sandra spent the rest of her life having rumors spread about her. She became known, under whispers at first, as the Gitchy Girl. 
1974, there wasn't really any kind of counseling offered or available to Sandra, and she was forced to try to deal with all of that by herself. At school, she was shunned, and rumors spread that parents told their children to stay away from Sandra as well. The stigma of surviving what she had survived made life nearly impossible for the young girl. Sandra would drop out of school just a few months after the murders. Even the media, when they would tell the story of what had happened in Gitche, Manitou, they would present Sandra under less than stellar lights. Instead of Sandra being viewed as the sole reason that those three brothers were put into jail, people asked questions about Sandra. They would ask what she was doing with four boys who were so much older than she was. They would ask what kind of trouble she brought with her from wherever she had moved from. All kinds of questions that A, don't matter, and B, are just low and despicable, really. Victim shaming is something that we talk about a lot in certain cases, and what happened to Sandra is a prime example of that. This girl was barely a teenager, and she experienced more trauma than almost anyone will witness in an entire lifetime. And people made her feel like she needed to walk through life with her head down and with her mouth shut. It breaks your heart to hear about stuff like this. I don't understand why people feel the need to treat other people like this. I'm happy to say that many survivors of rape look to Sandra Chesky today, though, as a hero. Sandra is an example of telling your story and living your life in spite of what anyone else might say, might think, or might do. It's it's awful that we need to have someone to look up to in this regard, that society has created such a situation, but thank God for Sandra Chesky, and for the fact that she is so strong and so bold and a survivor who helps others to get through their own traumas. Sandra has just recently come forward with all of her story, and with all of that she went through, which is why I was able to find so many details about this case. Sandra wanted to make sure that she honored the memories of Roger, Stuart, Dana, and Michael, while also ensuring that the truth was out there and available when her grandchildren one day go online and search up their family history. There is a sea of lies online, and Sandra wanted to make sure that the truth was at least out there for anyone who was looking to find it. The Friar brothers really never shared their side of the story. They never felt inclined to describe what really was the truth in the midst of a lot of lies that they told. Many believe that Sandra was in fact the motive. They believe that the brothers saw Sandra and wanted to take her, and that the four boys were indeed just collateral damage. Others believe that the boys were initially out pheasant hunting, and they came up empty. So, they decided in the dark to poach deer, which also didn't work. They then came across five teenagers, and they decided to hunt the one thing that they were able to find in that forest. That is a haunting thought, if that's what really happened. 
I think that there is no better way to end this episode than to say thank you again to Sandra Chesky for standing up, for telling her story, and for continuing to be a success story in spite of the storm of darkness that was all around her for most of her life because of what she went through. If you yourself or anyone that you know has been through sexual assault or really any other crime, please urge them to come forward. You never know how many lives you can save by telling the right people who the criminals are. Life can be hard, as Sandra shared, but you can do so much good by standing up to those that have harmed you or who have harmed anyone else. With that, on a rather depressing note on Christmas Day as I record, I do want to again wish you and yours a happy holiday season if you're listening in real time. And thank you for being a goner. GBNF is nothing without all of you listeners. So be happy, tell your story, and be better. I'll see you next time. <laughs>